This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair, number 39, March the 2nd, 1983. Today, by the way, is the anniversary of the birth in 1793 of Sam Houston, a great American. Ironically, Benito Juarez, the Mexican revolutionary leader and president, was also born on the same day in 1806. I might mention something about March the 1st, because a couple of centuries or more, much longer back in history, March the 1st was an interesting day of the year in Scotland. It was Wuppity Scurry Day. Uh, What was Wuppity Scurry Day? Well, I think it's a good day to be mindful of, and this day when judges are telling the states that their prisons deprive prisoners of their human rights and are insistent on creating luxury prisons. We have some in California that are really remarkable. I don't know why people want to go out, and in fact, they're minimum security prisons. You could walk out if you chose. But uh, Whoopity Scurry Day was the day once a year when the uh, prisoners in Clyde in Scotland were taken out of prison, out of their deep, dank, dark cells, and given a good whipping to get the blood moving, and then uh, herded into the river for their annual bath. Then they came ashore and uh, were taken back. That was whoopity scurry day. Now to go on to some other things. You recall I dealt with the new lands, the creation of new lands, according to Simon in his book, The Ultimate Resource. I had a very interesting conversation and telephone call from John Schaefer in Oregon. And he wrote... Uh, about the new land being subjugated in Oregon and in southern Washington. Incidentally, some of that land I had seen years ago, and it looked to be sub-marginal at the time, like desert land with nothing but sagebrush, but it's now very rich and productive. John Schaefer writes, Mr. Luther Fitch of the Hermiston Office of the Oregon State College Extension Service estimates that in the past 12 years, around 150,000 acres have been put into production in the north end of the two counties alone. I called a supervisor that was with UNI Corporation that has around 140,000 acres just across the river, uh, and uh, about half of this is in production. They are putting an additional 1,000 acres a year in production. Then nearby in Washington, there are several 5,000 to 20,000 acre places, including a new vineyard and winery, which has so far put in around 5,000 acres and an additional 500 acres of grapes a year. All total in Washington, there are probably 150,000 to 180,000 acres, which is new production in the past decade. This area has now surpassed Idaho for potato production. Crops are potatoes, corn, wheat, alfalfa, 
the last few years grapes, mint, and now orchards. North of Hanford, on the way to Ellensburg, there are now thousands of acres being turned into orchards from sagebrush. Mr. Fitch said regarding a trip to Switzerland and Europe that the big agriculture interests are now looking toward the equatorial areas as the farming area of the future, unquote. So this gives us an idea of the tremendous developments taking place in farming today. It's important to remember, too, that these developments are economic developments. That is, they would not exist if it were not profitable for them to be uh, developed. And very definitely, marginal soils are being turned into excellent soils. Well, I have something else from uh, John Jensen in Yap Island. And John commented about the condition of the plains before the coming of the white man and the days of the Indian and the buffalo. And he said that this is very true of places like Yap Island. He writes, and I quote, We're in the dry season now and hurting badly for water, by the way. Yappies still practice traditional slash-and-burn techniques of cultivation. Given the lack of knowledge of methods of fertilizing, this is probably inevitable. What is most shocking, though, is that, apparently just out of a feeling of enjoying the spectacle, people start fires now on the grasslands that are so dried out there is no function to this. It happens every year just out of habit. You see the smoke everywhere. They also find it hard to make themselves fish for fish one at a time, as you said the Indians did. Net fishing is the main thing people do. Although since this is usually accompanied by a big drinking bout, it's questionable whether there is much uh, a gain or profit from it, unquote. Let me say a little more about the West, the Middle West, and portions of the East in the old days. I mentioned the fact that the buffalo herds were numbered by the hundreds of thousands, that the dust from their movement could be seen in what is now the equivalent of two or three states away. Now, there are a great many conservationists who hold up with horror the practice of the railroads in hiring people like Buffalo Bill to wipe out the buffalo. There was a reason for it. The simple fact was that civilization and the buffalo could not coexist. When the uh, buffalo moved through a settled area, let us say a small settlement, what would happen was this. As these tremendous animals would move forward, hundreds of thousands of them, every building would in time be destroyed. A railroad car or a whole string of cars would be destroyed. There would not be enough left from a building to make a toothpick. Their hoofs would pulverize it totally. 
there would not be enough left of a human being to be identifiable as a human being. He would disappear totally, pulverized, ground into nothing. It was impossible for any settlement to exist with the buffalo. What the Indians did, and this was a very difficult thing, was to get the stray cows or bulls that were on the edge of the herd and to try by all means to avoid doing anything that would stampede the buffaloes in their direction. This is why they would work behind the herd and far out with a straggler that was off to the side. And even then it was very, very difficult. I have talked, by the way, years ago to Indians who were on buffalo hunts. As a result, the buffalo had to go. He can only survive as something in a preserve with a fence. The herd has to be thinned regularly. If you get too large a herd that moves as a herd and stampedes as a herd, none of the fences they have can cope with the buffalo. As a result, we cannot allow ourselves to be governed by the sentimental kind of thinking that marks some conservationists. Now, the passenger pigeon was a bird that has disappeared. Again, it was impossible to coexist with a passenger pigeon. When they would hit the rural areas of Michigan, the trees would break under the weight of the millions of passenger pigeons. No garden could survive. No fruit trees could survive. Everything in their wake was destroyed. Now, granted that it was too bad that they disappeared totally, but the simple fact is we are given a great deal of sentimental thinking, the gist of which is man should disappear, not some of these animals. But there are some animals that cannot coexist with civilization. Our record as a people in conservation is much better than some of these conservationists imply. They are, in all too many cases, people who are misanthropic. They hate man. And therefore, they use conservationism as a means of clubbing people, laying a guilt trip on people, as though to be a human being is somehow shameful. Well, now I want to turn to something very different, something that uh, was a bit of a surprise to me. Our communications media does not give a good picture of our country or, in many cases, any other country. I read recently an interesting book written by Qaddafi of Libya, who is very definitely classified nowadays by the press as a villain. Now, this is interesting because we do not see the press treating Andropov in the same way. 
but Qaddafi is treated in particular as a villain. He is the author of a little book which sets forth his philosophy, and I've read for uh, the thoughts of Chairman Mao and saw nothing good in it, and, of course, Lenin and Stalin and others. None of those was there any surprise for me, but there was in uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi's The Green Book. Before I go into it, in his Christmas and New Year message to heads of state, which I doubt any head of state in the world looked at, Qaddafi said, as we stand on the eve of 1983, without the person of Jesus Christ to remind us of God's word and rebuke the conceited, the greedy, the corrupt, and the sinners, we should take it upon ourselves to reprimand one another for our wrong deeds. We should realize that we are far from the teachings of Christ and closer to those of Satan. We need to read once again the teachings of uh, Christ. I am aware that the conceit and waywardness of the world today is far stronger than my call. This is all I have to say to the world on this occasion. But as the Holy Bible says in its opening verse, in the beginning there was the word. Well, Qaddafi is wrong there. That's at the... Uh, beginning of the Gospel of John, not the beginning of the Bible. However, his green book is a most interesting book and a real surprise. He says that he is a socialist, but his socialism is very definitely something different from what I recognize as socialism. He is against compulsory education, he feels that when you have that, it's a means of controlling the masses. He is against the state ownership of property. He is strongly for the private ownership. He says every man should own his own home, and every man should own the work in which he is engaged, that the so-called ownership by the workers when the state is really controlling it is definitely wrong. It's a fraud. But Qaddafi has this to say too. He says that the trouble with the world today is its system of laws. And he says that the weakness of the West, the fatal weakness that is going to destroy the Western world and every part of the world that imitates the West, is that law is created by parliaments. And he said parliamentary law, law created by man, is worthless. All such law has no roots in the nature of man. And he said the only kind of law that works is customary law, customs of a people and religious law. Then people will obey the law. So he said, the religion of a people must be the source of its law and their holy books. Now that's good thinking, and I approve of it 100%. So while there is a great deal, and I have not uh, 
gone into everything in Qaddafi. I have to say that uh, I came to a real appreciation of his thinking. I think he's muddled at points. He believes in private property, but he's against profits and money. He's for a work society in which it is on a basis of little people. In fact, one would have to say there are, it's a romantic vision. It has strong echoes or affinities to Jefferson's ideas of an agrarian democracy. So, while it is muddled at points, very clearly where he deals with law, he is unusual in his thinking, very, very astute. Let me quote this passage. Freedom is threatened unless society has a sacred law based on stable rules which are not subject to change or substitution by any instrument of governing. On the contrary, it is incumbent upon the instrument of, government, of governing to abide by the law of society. Nevertheless, peoples throughout the world are now being ruled by man-made laws that are liable to change and abrogation because of the struggle for power between instruments of governing. I think that is very well put. There's much more that uh, I could say, but let me just give one more sentence from Qaddafi, and I quote, The sound rule is that every nation should have a religion. The contrary to that is the abnormal, unquote. And he says that that religion of the people should govern or be the source through its holy book of the laws, so that the laws should come from the God of that religion. Well, his point that there is no certainty in the law, if you do not have that, applies to certain things today. Because one of the most interesting things right now is what is happening to Social Security. It's near bankruptcy. And there is an increasing fear on the part of the elderly that they're never going to get anything, although what they're getting now is really welfare. Now there is an attempt to bring in the federal employees and to bring in ministers like myself who are not under Social Security and do not want to be under it compulsorily into the system in order to bring in more money into a collapsing system. Well, the effort to change the rules of Social Security and the fact that they are changing the rules of the game in one thing after another is creating some very serious doubts in the minds of people. Wherever I've been of late, there has been a discussion of current affairs and what's going on in Congress with regard to Social Security. And several times I've heard somebody just in passing make a remark concerning the Keogh plan and IRA, that these things are dangerous. 
because Congress created them, and Congress can change the rules, and you can be wiped out. I think that's a very valid fear. I think it's very obvious that the federal government has never kept the rules that it has set up. Why should it keep the rules tomorrow, especially when the situation is becoming more critical? You can be sure that they will violate every rule they themselves have set up and work to wipe us all out. Meanwhile, this item from one of our people in Australia was very, very interesting. I quote, Will the Christian church please stand up and be counted? The Adelaide News reported the concern of a Baptist minister to the recent recommendations on homosexuality by that state's anti-discrimination board. This was the uh, NSW state area. In effect, it would mean not only could the Bible be lawfully banned from schools, homosexuals would be able to come into the schools and present homosexual activity as a viable an acceptable alternative to our traditional husband and wife relationship in mar marriage, said the Reverend Duncan. South Australians should also be aware that the Labour government intends to pass an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act later this year, which will make discrimination on the basis of sexual preference unlawful. How many Christian Labour voters knew that the proposed amendment was one of Labour's election policies. It is absolutely vital that we look under the labels and examine the products in the political arena." Unquote. Howard Phillips has sent me data about the Democratic National Committee, by the way, and its very extensive involvement in the homosexual rights movement. There have been articles in several publications about the situation with regard to these foreign loans. Banks on the Brink or at the Brink by Richard Colson is one such article in National Review for February 18, 1983. And it deals uh, with the fact that these foreign loans are very, very uh, dangerous that they threaten the future of this country and that they are going to spell massive inflation for this country and for the public. And this uh, passage, by the way, is of interest. I quote, the accounting profession may also rise to revolt. A quiet but intense struggle has already begun between banks and the independent accounting firms auditing their books. One accounting journal has predicted 1983 as the year of the bank auditor's nightmare. Traditionally, auditors have allowed banks to carry loans at original cost as long as interest is being paid. Unquote. But now, of course, 
with that ending, they can, if they're strict in their accounting, show the banks to be, to all practical intent, bankrupt, ready to fold. But, as the author says, in general, however, bankers seem to feel that their industry is or should be exempt from the discipline of a free market economy. Well, at the same time, we have this statement from the uh, Phoenix Letter, edited by Anthony Sutton, and available for $87 a year from Research Publications, Box 39850, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069. And Sutton writes, and I quote, the nine largest U.S. banks are technically bankrupt. The Phoenix Letter has acquired information from the Federal Finance Institution's Examination Council, uh, which conclusively demonstrates that the nine largest U.S. banks have an exposure to foreign non-performing loans far in excess of their capital. He gives a list of the banks and the data, and you can get it by subscribing or asking for this issue, which is dated, as I said, February 1983, Volume 1, Number 12. I don't know the cost for a single copy, but at any rate, he says, the above banks have loaned out 900% of their combined capital to foreign countries. Many of these countries cannot repay their loans. The loans are non-performing in bank parliaments, in brief, bad debts. If international banks were normal businesses, they would be out of business today, all of them. Then he goes on to give data about these loans and much, much more. Well, now to turn to another subject of an economic character. One of the books I read recently was by Peter Earle, E-A-R-L-E, The World of Defoe, Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, and this was published by Athenaeum in New York in 1977. Peter Earle is a professor or lecturer, which I don't know, in economic history at the London School of Economics. He has turned to Defoe, a literary figure, because Defoe is the major source of information about the economics of his era that we have. Incidentally, no one knows how much Defoe wrote because he wrote under so many pseudonyms and wrote so steadily and voluminously that uh, from time to time there are still dis uh, discovering works which seem to be written in Defoe's style. So, uh, a collected works of Defoe would be very difficult 
produce. Defoe not only wrote Robinson Crusoe, but also uh, some of the first novels ever written, Roxana and Ma Flanders, and is a gold mine of information in his pamphleteering concerning the politics and the economics of his age. Now, a section of the book is devoted to the information that is derived from Defoe concerning piracy in his day. The author coming from the London School of Economics, and while a good writer governed by the thinking of that school, fails to give, I think, the best economic perspective on piracy in that era. Piracy for a time in the 17th century was quite extensive and uh, went on into uh, the 18th century for a time. But piracy had as its background something that Earl does not note, mercantilism. There was not a situation of free trade. Mercantilism pre uh, prevailed, and it was protectionist, therefore. Thus, for example, Britain did not want Spanish goods coming into the American colonies. And how were Spanish goods to reach the American colonies? After all, something from some of the Spanish colonies in Latin America would be very much prized in the colonies, and to have to get the same goods from Britain was more expensive. So naturally there was black marketing and smuggling and piracy as well. As a result, the whole world of mercantilism created an economic situation in which there was a market for illicit activities. Now, not all pirates had an available market. Sometimes they could not readily market their goods because to attempt to market the goods in some areas would mean hanging. As a result, there was a priority on uh, seizing ships that were going out to buy. For example, East India ships leaving Britain, going to India and the Orient, were targets when they went out because they were carrying shipments of silver with which to buy goods. And silver in coins or bars is anonymous. But goods are not. Evidence of goods from a particular area would be evidence, if the pirate had them, of piracy. The pirate did not go around labeling himself a pirate. So he had to have money, unless he had, as with the colonies, a given market. But most pirates had to have cash, or they were in trouble. Anything else was not readily, readily saleable and could lead to serious problems. 
Moreover, the sugar, cloth, silk, spices was allowed to proceed to its destination. Thus the homecoming ship had relative safety. The homecoming ship had gotten through the pirate ships, gotten to its destination, and was going home with the goods. These were left alone, usually. Then there were other factors with regard to piracy that were very, very interesting. Various groups of pirates had a monopoly on a particular area. In the Persian Gulf, for example, pirates from Europe or the Americas didn't have a chance. They were in alien waters, and they would be murdered and robbed rather than finding a market. So they stayed out of those areas. Now, I bring this up because there was quite a bit of to-do in the press, and in some areas the pressure is being kept up against Fred Andre of the SEC because he pointed out that uh, kickbacks and bribes were a way of life in industry today because of regulations. When you tamper with a free market and introduce regulations, the free market could only reassert itself through a variety of devious methods such as kickbacks and payoffs, bribes and the like. Now, that's what led to piracy. We have the same condition today, and so we have illicit activities created by a false economic perspective. It was mercantilism then, and it's neo-mercantilism now. The situation is essentially identical. It is simply that the illicit form of activity has taken a different form. If we want to eliminate the illicit form of activity, we've got to eliminate the regulations and the laws which have created it. So, Andre's point was right. There would not be kickbacks by shippers. There would not be bribery if the regulations did not create a dishonest picture. Now, on to something very different. I was interested recently also in the role of character and uh, destiny. One of the sad figures of English history was James II. James II ascended the throne on the death of his brother, Charles II, both of them sons of the beheaded Charles I, a family notable throughout its line for its tactlessness, its stupidity, its stubbornness, and its inability to deal with reality. Charles II had a good deal of the tact, but none of the wisdom. It was said of him that uh, 
He never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one. Now this note concerning James I by Bishop Burnett, I think is a good capsule portrait of James II. I quote, I will digress a little to give an account of the Duke's character, whom I knew for some years so particularly that I can say much upon my own knowledge. He was very brave in his youth, and so much magnified by Monsieur Turin that till his marriage lessened him, he really clouded the king and passed for the superior genius. He was naturally candid and sincere, and a firm friend, till affairs in his religion wore out all his first principles and inclinations. He had a great desire to understand affairs, and in order to that he kept a constant journal of all that passed, of which he showed me a great deal. Duke of Buckingham gave me once a short but severe character of the two brothers. It was the more severe because it was true. The king, he said, could see things if he would, and the duke would see things if he could. He had no true judgment, and was soon determined by those whom he trusted, but he was obstinate against all other advices. He was perpetually in one amour or another, without being very nice in his choice. Upon which the king his brother said once he believed his brother had his mistresses given him by his priests for penance. Unquote. Now, an interesting thing about Charles is that when he was a refugee in Paris at the French court, he very quickly wore out his welcome. They found him so uh, boring and tactless and headstrong that one of the top officials of France said it was easy to see how his loss of England was inevitable. Well, um, to turn to another thing from the uh, same era, one of the ugly facts of our day is that on the slightest pretext or with no pretext at all, <clears throat> our homosexuals have been claiming virtually everyone in history that is a notable figure as a homosexual. Some 20 years or so ago, a prominent historian wrote about Richard the Lionhearted as though he were a homosexual. This has since been proven to have been false, but for over 20 years, because of the reputation of this historian, who, by the way, has turned out to have been a homosexual. Book after book has described Richard the Lionhearted as a homosexual, all of which is totally false. 
For once manufactured, these lies are continued. And so I encountered the other day a religious publication which spoke of Richard as a homosexual and gave an ostensible statement by him lusting after some other man. The whole thing is a fraud. Another figure that has been similarly dirtied and is cited repeatedly, and this was again in a liberal religious periodical, is Milton, John Milton the poet. Why? Because when he was at Oxford, he was called the Lady of Oxford. Why was he so called? Simply because he refused to get drunk or to go with the others to houses of prostitution. Milton himself commented on that fact, and I'd like to quote that comment. Some people have lately nicknamed me the lady, but why do I seem to them too little of a man? Because I have never had the strength to drink off a bottle like a prize fighter, Or because my hand has never grown horny with holding a plow handle? Or because I was not a farmhand at seven and so never took a midday, midday nap in the sun? Last, because I never showed my virility the way these brothelers do. But I wish they could leave playing the ass as readily as I, the woman. Unquote. Now, that was the fact. But these people are determined to see the worst about everyone and to dirty up everyone and make them like themselves. Well, now to something very different. An excellent biography of uh, Louis XIV was written in the 70s by Professor Wolfe. It's an era that is very interesting because after 1660 you had a dramatic change in the character of Western civilization. From a religious perspective, it turned to an enlightenment, a humanistic perspective. From Cromwell in England, he went to Charles II. In England, Louis XIV. In Spain, you had a monarch who no longer saw the chapel as the center for Louis XIV, the bedroom was. Now, I've, I've dealt with this in other contexts before, more than once. Under Louis XIV, France was virtually destroyed by the economic consequences of his wars. On top of that, a tremendous famine struck, epidemics, a winter so cold that it was unequaled, and the result was devastating for France. Moreover, it created a ground for the breakdown of the traditional ideas. They were some time in going, but to cite from an older work, Cécile Hugon, H-U-G-O-N, Social France, 
in the 17th century. This book goes back to 1911. And according to Hugon, I quote, the guiding star of 17th century social life was a belief in the divine right of kings to absolute power. A natural inference drawn from this belief is the assumption that might is right, primarily in the case of kings, secondly, in that of persons deriving their power from them. The king, the nobles, and the church had official standing and definite rights. The merchant and townsman subsisted mostly on privileges painfully acquired, but now confirmed by law. There is, we learn from a 17th century historian, also a fourth class in the state, namely the peasant, but he has nothing of much importance to say. Unquote. Hugon goes on to say, and I quote, the proper attitude for the poor is one of resignation, resignation coupled with a proper gratitude for the benevolent alms of the rich. The exercise of charity is incumbent on the rich as a duty to themselves. The poor have no right to demand it as their due. The principle of mutual obligation was not firmly grasped until the days of Rousseau and the Encyclopedist. Unquote. However, what I particularly am interested in with regard to this book is this. There were the plagues as 1709, the wars, the siege of Paris, the famine after the hard winter, tremendous upheavals. Now, on top of this, the heavy taxation when people were unable to farm or to have an income. And the author, Hugon, says, persons unable to pay were deprived of everything they possessed. When their horses had been taken, the peasants made a last effort to carry on agriculture by dragging their carts themselves. In the worst years of the Fronde, that's the Civil War, one even reads of priests who harness themselves to the plow as a means of saving their parishioners from famine, unquote. I want to stress that uh, sentence for a bit. The, uh, the bishops were a part of the nobility. They had privileges comparable to the nobility. They were often irreligious men. But what we are not told is that the parish priest shared the life of the people and was deeply involved in their everyday life. So that during the fronde for a parish priest to pull the plow to help a farmer plow is a revealing indication of that identification. Now, it was not only during the Fronde that this type of thing continued so that on the eve of the revolution you would have to say that 
in the village, in the countryside. The parish priest was anything but the kind of villain that men from the day of Rousseau on to the men of the revolution portrayed him to be. We are still subjected to a great deal of propaganda on the subject, and it's vicious and it's false. When we accept propaganda like that, we are setting up ourselves to be described the same way. And you had better believe there are people here in the United States who are ready today to see the clergy in similar terms. All you have to do is to read the vilification of men like Jerry Falwell to realize how true it is. Now, I'm not saying this as a champion of Jerry Falwell. We are theologically quite different in our perspectives. But I'm saying it in the interest of truth. We have a radical dishonesty that's coming in, the groundwork being laid for the vilification of the clergy of this country, Catholic and Protestant. Don't be a part of it. Because historians will go to these vilifiers for the supposed truth in the future. But by the grace of God, we have a battle we can still wage, which I believe we're going to win. Now, there's no question the battle is going to be much more severe in the days ahead. As I mentioned in my last talk, I was going to Maine, and I was there for a trial in a federal court. There's nothing to report on except that I did testify, but what I learned in Montana and elsewhere is that in most states of the Union now, there is an attempt to destroy the home school. Now, there are many home schools in Montana and in California and in most states, Michigan, Maine, and so on. Why? Well, if there's no Christian schools in the area, no parochial schools, what parents do is to teach their children at home, to teach them themselves. Now, Granted that in some cases it may be that the teaching is not adequate. And the testimony before the Montana State Legislature, the State Senate, a committee of the Senate on education, one county superintendent was able to cite one family where there was a home school and it was inadequate. Just one. And we don't know whether her statement would be borne out on investigation. But I'm assuming she told the truth. I'm sure you could find a like instance in other states. But the fact is, as one senator told me, the public schools of Montana are a disaster area. And the students are not learning as they should or at all. We have today in California 100,000 homeschools. 
100,000. They're moving now against those parents in California and in almost every state. They don't want freedom. They're not ready to face up to any testing results on these children because they're clearly superior. But there's a bigger issue than that, freedom. And that is what the whole thing is about. The public schools cannot stand freedom and free choice. Those 100,000 parents who are teaching perhaps 200, 250,000, 300,000 children, we don't know, are taking money away from the public schools. The public schools don't get the money for those students since they are not enrolled. And this is what is precipitating it. Let me tell you one thing more. I can say this about California, and I know it's true elsewhere. Californians elected a new state superintendent of schools who is a conservative and an enemy of freedom. Too often conservative means when he's in office that he is for more state power for his side. And we've seen that in the Reagan administration. And we're seeing it right here in California with Bill Honig, a state superintendent of schools. We were not as badly off under Wilson Riles, a liberal, although the evidence indicates he probably would have moved in the same direction. What we need, therefore, is a real house cleaning, and we need Christians to vote in terms of their faith and to demand candidates who share their faith and who don't have an election-time religion, as Carter and Anderson and Reagan did before the last election. I'm tired of election-time Christians in politics. We need men who will fight day by day in Congress for their faith, for freedom. We had quite a number of very outstanding names elected to the Senate, and only a couple of them really were standing in terms of their professed faith before. Most of them have become members of an exclusive club, and that's about the sum total of their commitment. So we need to concern ourselves about the future of freedom and the future of the faith. Later on this year, I will probably be flying to a foreign country to spend two days there talking to religious leaders and possibly some of the civil authorities on the developing persecution of Christian churches and Christian schools in that country. The battle is quite extensive. We are trying also to help with still another country where one of our associates is working hard to change the situation there and in fact has had 
a great deal of influence in the country, so much so that uh, his local income now is being steadily wiped out by persecution. This is why we are having to help with his support as we're able, which means that uh, he gets a check when we have the money to send to him. It's a worldwide battle, and it needs our prayers and it needs our efforts and our activities. I believe we're going to win. We have been very busy here in the past, oh, four or five days with meetings. And these meetings have had as their focus what we can do towards changing what is happening. I can't tell you about these meetings at present, but by the end of the year we'll have some activities underway. We're going to do what we can on the battlefront. We hope you'll be fighting the battles on your front and that you'll help us in that battle. It's going to take time, it's going to take money, it's going to take prayers. One of the things that marked, by the way, and I'm going to close with this, France in that pre-revolutionary era was the activity among the poor of a very remarkable man. In fact, more than one. But St. Vincent headed a movement in which he brought people, not the clergy, who banded themselves together for active work rather than for contemplation. And he said that work was to be their best prayer. This did not mean that he said don't pray, but he said make work your best prayer. Give to your prayers the focus of work. And as a result, They were out in the public streets, the wards of the hospitals, everywhere, to work with the poor, to work, to take care of all problems that could be dealt with by men determined to minister to human need. It's the same kind of thing we need now. The revolution was not averted in France because there were not enough people with a vision of St. Vincent. But I believe there are a legion of people here in this country, Catholic and Protestant, who are ready to work. By God's grace, we're going to turn this country around. We're going to make it Christ's realm. And we are going to triumph. Do be in prayer and make work your best prayer. 
Thank you and God bless you and I'll be with you again in two weeks.